Stephen Pressfield is absolutely one of my favorite authors. He wrote the book, The War of Art, which is the Bible for anybody who has a gift they want to give to the world, anybody who has a creative passion or profession, and they're coming face to face with that force, that force he named capital R resistance, that thing that's keeping us from going to the place we are, to our potential of where we could be. He's got a bunch of other amazing nonfiction books, especially The Artist's Journey, which we get into in this podcast. But really what he's most known for is his fiction work and his fiction work regarding the warrior archetype. And we dive deep into the warrior archetype into this podcast. He's an inspiring guy with an inspiring story. And I can't wait to share this interview with one of my absolute heroes. But before we get started, we have some super good news at on it. So it's been incredibly hard to get kettlebells pretty much anywhere in the world. We've struggled to keep them in stock. But now for Halloween, we resurrected our legend bells and our zombie kettlebells. So they're going to go super fast. But if you're listening to this, go immediately to onit.com slash Aubrey. You'll get 10% off the kettlebells. We also have a bunch of great gear, the zombie t-shirt, the hoodie, the water bottle, even a vinyl banner. But really, get the kettlebells. These kettlebells are custom sculpted, forged, and cast in solid iron. And a kettlebell is like an entire gym in a single piece of equipment. So, of course, if you want to learn how to use the kettlebells better, there's the Onnit 6 program, which is one of the best instructional workout programs for kettlebells, period. But check it all out. It's going to only be available for a limited time. Save 10% on everything. Onnit.com slash Aubrey. Stephen Pressfield, here we are again, seven years later, doing a podcast together. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Aubrey. Like I said before, I'm sorry it took so long to get together again. But here we are. There's a, there's a saying, the wizard is always on time. And I think <laughs> in this case, the mentor is always on time. Uh, because that's exactly what you've been for me, really, for the last 10 years of my own journey. I mean, before I started on it, there was you know your works the war of art and then there was the work the warrior ethos and both of those had a significant significant impact so you published the warrior ethos march of 2011 and then on it really birthed onto the scene july of 2011 ah so it was like right at that time and i was you know i was really desperate i was desperate to kind of make something of my life and i knew i had all this potential but all of the roads that i was going down seemed blocked and i couldn't figure it out and nothing was quite working and there was this kind of quiet desperation that i had but the warrior ethos really came at the at the right time because i was like all right you know how does the warrior look at all of these different obstacles and how does the warrior look at all of these different situations and what you were able to provide there because you know at that point i was so desperate to succeed it wasn't even resistance that was the acting force uh -huh. you know it was like i i would i would try anything i would do anything uh -huh. i would bleed in any way so the warrior ethos was almost more important at that point just because i needed that framework to say like all right i'm just going to get up every day you know, and just go point myself towards whatever thing I have to do, and I'm going to do it. Ah, and that well, was just such boy, a that such is a great. I had no real idea that it affected you that much. That's great. Ah, yeah, it's funny because I mean, it, the book wasn't written really so much to hope to do something like that. But um, anyway, what what was it about it, Aubrey? If you if you don't mind my asking, what? Well, let me let me read you what I ultimately um, 
I ultimately wrote something that contains a contains a quote from you. And this was something that I wrote about the warrior ethos. I wrote, what is a warrior? A warrior is a way of life, a way of thinking, a way of being. Carlos Castaneda says we choose only once to be warriors or ordinary. We choose only once because choosing to be a warrior alters your fundamental approach to life. While others will view everything as a blessing or a curse, you will see only challenges, and a warrior lives to overcome challenges. Every warrior has a code, an ethos. It is an invisible thread that connects him to all of his warrior brothers and sisters since the beginning of time. Stephen Pressfield asks, how do we find our true calling, our soul companions, our destiny? He answers, in this task, our mightiest ally is the warrior ethos. Ah, well, that's great, huh? Yeah, ah. you wrote that so, at that time, huh? Yeah, ah. uh, that was that was right around that was right around ah. at that time, and um, so I wanted to I wanted to open this up because you also put out a great video series, which I highly recommend to people. Just recently, that's talking about you know warrior archetype and the warrior ethos, and I was very much in that archetype of my being and perhaps still am to some certain extent although i feel some transitioning happening and we'll talk about archetypes too but you've seen with all of your work you know all of the all of a lot of not all of it but a lot of your work and and of course the warrior ethos book you have this deep affinity for this you know understanding of the warrior archetype and um it was incredibly useful for me but i just like to hear you know from your perspective and i know you talked about it a little bit on your video series where it came from for you and and you know what it's what it means and then let's uh let's just kind of unpack it a little bit well it's sort of you know it really um i've done a few podcasts lately and, and done a few interviews lately with uh like um veterans and and guys that are you know former navy seals and stuff like that and they've sort of asked me if this comes from my own experience in the military, and it really does not. It really comes from this, you know. It's it's really um, the whole sort of warrior concept, inner warrior, mental warrior, the inner game, the inner war, comes from you know facing the blank page as a writer and doing the the. Um, the inner challenge that you have to have to write, not just to write one thing, but to have a body of work, you know, and to maintain a focus over a long period of time, a marathon, you know, not a sprint. And that it's just that metaphor, the warrior metaphor, really just resonated with me, you know, that the, the virtues of a warrior of, of uh, patience, of perseverance, of courage, and like what you say a lot on on it, the kind of willing embrace of adversity, of willingly choosing the hard life. And so that, um, you know, for me, it's mental more than anything else. But um, to be a writer, to be an artist, to be an entrepreneur, to be anybody that is, has to be self-disciplined, not disciplined from some external source. You know, you need to call on some sort of inner Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, inner Musashi Miyamoto, something like that. And so th those, I, I think of myself that way. And um, that's kind of how it evolved. And the other thing, I don't want to start wandering in what we're talking here, but the books that I've written, you know, like Gates of Fire and Tides of War that were set in the ancient world and, and that were about warfare, about ancient warfare, came 
as a complete surprise to me when I started writing them. It wasn't like I wanted to do this since I was 11 years old or I followed any, you know, I was, you know, playing Assassin's Creed or anything like that. So in other words, what I'm trying to say, I guess, Aubrey, is that this was in me somehow, even though I didn't know it and I didn't plan it. And um, it just, like you, I was constantly looking for anything that would work. You know, please give me something that works, you know? <laughs> yes, and, I feel you. You know, well, I'll take anything, you know? <laughs> and I went, I'm sure like you, I went down a lot of roads. But sure, I made it, I'm, before on it, I made it a men's nail polish company. Ah. I mean, I was, I was trying everything. Hey, that doesn't surprise me at all, you know? <laughs> but yeah. Um, so anyway, that's sort of how it kind of came about for me. Yeah. Embracing it's, that it's kind a, of warrior archetype and ethos. It's interesting. In, in your video series about the warrior, you talk a lot about archetypes and Jungian archetypes. And it's it seems like for some of us, that warrior archetype is just in us stronger. And for me, I remember, you know, I was drawn to all the plastic sword. I had the I had the greatest collection of plastic swords for a five-year-old <laughs> probably of all time. Uh -huh. and, and I was and I would go fight sand piles and I would imagine, you know, conquests and I would write little stories sitting on my grandma's lap uh -huh. about knights saving damsels in distress. And uh -huh. then going through all school, I would study, you know, I actually majored in classical civilization. Why? Mostly because I was interested in the same stories that you're interested uh -huh. in, you know, Plutarch's lives ah, and yeah. these different tales and the stories of how the Roman legions would fight and square off against each other and how the different, you know, phalanxes were formed. And I was just so interested in not so much modern warfare you know that wasn't the thing that really drew me and, and of course i you know read some richard marcinko and some you know navy seal kind of books and things but it was really like that the older archetype that that really kind of called me forward but i didn't there was no battle that really made sense and this is the interesting thing back then in sparta there was real war like you were going to use your sword, you were going to use your shield, and you were going to use your spear, and you were going to point it at somebody at some point. Sometimes it was the Persians, sometimes it was other Greeks, and it was this clear external challenge. But for the modern warrior, we feel called to that archetype, but we're like, where do we point our spears? <laughs> you know, like what are we going to do? Yeah, and, and really, ultimately, we end up having to point it towards our art, the inner war. Yes. I mean, it's like that joke on Seinfeld that he had about everybody going to the gym. It's like they're all training, but what are you training for? You know, <laughs> right? you're not in the NBA or anything like that, but it is for that. It's training for whatever our particular calling is or our destiny or whatever it is that, you know, following, you know, our bliss, if you want to quote Joseph Campbell, whatever, whatever that is, that, that inner fight. For you, when when you were going when did you did you always feel that or was there was there was resistance and acting force when you were going and picking fruit and working as a driver and and all of the many different careers that you had did you did you feel that warrior fire or were you in still you know was resistance the acting force that was just kind of keeping you away from your smith career that's a great question yeah i, I was just completely lost in in that era you know and uh, i was just dominated by uh, um, uh, self-doubt and and resistance and aversion and fear to doing what I was going to do. You know, I I had I had tried to write a book early, you know, when I was like 23, 24, and completely failed, flamed out at like you know, fumbled on a one-yard line, you know, mm -hmm. and and uh, 
I was plunged into a sort of a, a, a really terrible state of um, shame and guilt and, you know, uh, you know, my marriage blew up and I sort of dropped out of life, you know. And in those times when I was doing a bunch of jobs, as you're alluding, you know, I was traveling around the country just doing a lot of blue collar sort of jobs. Um, I was just trying to stay afloat. Uh, I, I wasn't doing any writing at that time. I had sort of given up. I felt like uh, I had a shot. I blew it. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. I'm just, um, I'm, in that case, I was really desperate in a sense. I'm looking for any floating spar that I can, you know, <laughs> grab onto. But, but uh, in, and also I had, um, you know, like uh, when I was driving trucks, I really wanted to do that. I thought, this is it. I just want to find a job. That a, that a regular person can do, that I can get up in the morning and do, you know, and that was, that was my sort of whole focus then. The idea of writing or any kind of calling or any kind of anything was buried completely, you know, but in the end, I just couldn't, I couldn't do those other things, you know, I couldn't find a, a, a blue collar life that would work for me. And I finally, you know, sort of, not until I finally sort of got back and sat down at a typewriter again, did I really feel like my feet were on the ground. Mm. Did you hear did you hear the whisper at all then at that point when you're on those long, you know, long overnight truck drives and it's just no, it's just no, I was lines. completely you, in the that whisper world. was the death to the whisper. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, I travel I was traveling, you know, Aubrey, I, I had, you know, I was living in my van at the time, and I always had my typewriter. I don't know if you can see it back here. I always mm -hmm. had that with me, but it was like buried under piles of, you know whatever clothes or something and so but i guess symbolically you know that was kind of there but yeah. i never even and i didn't throw it away i should have thrown it away but i never did so i guess Your it was always there percolating but I, I i was totally out of my mind yeah it's it's interesting because you know when i give advice because i coach a lot of a lot of people now i have uh, a group called the fit for service mastermind yeah, always, yeah. you know coaching different people and um one of the things that I'll encourage people to do is get still enough. Just get still enough. Stop moving. Stop doing all the things. Find a practice, whether it's meditation or whether it's sensory deprivation or whether it's plant medicine or whether it's just contemplation in nature. Get still enough that that whisper, and there's a lot of other names for the whisper. We'll go into this kind of understanding of the you know inner metaphysical cosmos that we have. But the whisper is the clearest way to describe it to most people, which is that thing that's saying like, hey, like if you would have gotten still enough, it would have been like, hey, that typewriter, you should probably, you know, use it. Like put your fingers yeah. on that thing. Let me <laughs> See what take happens. back what I just said, Aubrey. I, I sort of always knew that. I mean, it was always there in the background, but I, just, mm -hmm. I was like so ashamed of it. Uh -huh. I'm so ashamed of my failure that I sort of wouldn't let myself look at it. But it was always there kind of tormenting me that way. So that whisper was was there. I had just repressed yeah. it, you know? Yeah. And then finally, there was a period of, and this is the interesting thing that'll happen. Sometimes we'll drive ourselves into such desperation that we're just like, fuck it. I got to do this because nothing else, everything <laughs> else is so bad that it doesn't matter if I fail again because it can't possibly be worse than the existence that I'm living now. 
Was that the moment that you had where you just finally started to write, or was it inspiration rather than No, it really was exactly what you said, and I write about it in, in The War of Art. I was in a sublet apartment in New York City, you know, talking about this typewriter, and uh, it was one of those nights where I thought, I can't go out chasing women anymore. I can't go distracting myself doing any other stuff. I can't get drunk. I can't do anything like that. I'll just, you know, I'll kill myself if I try to. I've done it so many times. Right. And I sort of pulled this typewriter out and thinking it was like the dumbest thing in the world. And, you know, for a couple of hours, I read about this in The War of Art. I just did, you know, hit the keys, put out something that was absolutely horrible, threw it away immediately. But I, when I, was, I went to do the dishes, I tell this story, and I found that I was whistling. And I just sort of realized that uh, I, I had sort of hit a, I was calm. You know, that hysteria in my mind had gone away just because of the two hours of trying, you know, trying to do what I was really meant to do, no matter how bad I was at it. You know, it was like the equivalent of trying to, to run and you could only run like 100 yards before you gassed and threw up. You know, that was the kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But at least the running, you know, turned a corner somehow. So yeah, so just exactly what you and I think, I think we all have to hit that sort of hit that bottom in some way, you know, because we're all going to run away from what it is that we're supposed to do, again and again and again and again until we finally run away so many times that the pain of not facing it becomes greater than the pain of facing it. So we've been talking a bit about the Spartan ethos and about how tough these warriors are. Well, there's one area where I have no Spartan ethos at all, and that's when I'm going to the bathroom. I want it to be luxurious. I want my ass to wash itself. And that's where Tushy comes in. When I was going to Sedona, I recently spent three weeks there. I had some Tushies shipped out there and Tushies installed in all kinds of different toilets so I could shit in my variety of different bathrooms, look out a variety of different windows and just click that nozzle and then all of my shit gets washed away. It's not like I have to keep wiping. Wiping is gross. Like I do it to dry myself, but it's nice to have a nice clean ass. And sometimes when you're wiping, you just keep wiping. It's like you have a highlighter sticking out of your ass and a brown marker and you keep wiping and there's always a streak. And when do you stop? Do you just fucking call it quits? You're just like, ah, well, screw it. I'm done with this. I'm tired of it. No, that's not me. I want to be clean. So I'll just keep wetting and wiping and wet wipes and then they'll clog the sewage system. It's all a mess. Tushy solves that problem. It just installs right over your toilet. It takes the clean water from the water intake, washes your butt, and whatever dingleberries you have fall back into the toilet, and then you just dry yourself off. Like, I've rarely ever seen any brown come up in my drying wipe after the Tushy. Like, this is the thing. A lot of times on podcasts, people are like, what's the invention that, you know, for under so many dollars that will, you know, make a positive impact on your life? Tushy. Like for sure, tushy, that's it. So I don't know, maybe you guys are like some of those people who can just like drop a really solid log and everything is like clean, but that's not me and that's probably not most of you either. So tushy is awesome. It's only $79. Go to hellotushy.com slash amp. You'll get 10% off your order. And truly, this is one of the products that I absolutely unequivocally recommend to all human beings, hellotushy.com slash amp. And plus, it's good for the environment. It's just a little water. It's not all that fucking paper. And you know, if we enter the next toilet paper apocalypse, you're fucking covered. You're all good. You just wash yourself. Hellotushy.com slash amp. 
it's interesting, and I'm sure you've had you have a lot of people in your life who you see her are in this same similar spot, the spot that I've been in, the spot that you've been in, and you know that they have that whisper that's telling them maybe it's yeah. to write, maybe it's to sing, maybe it's to this, and it's very difficult to actually give them any advice that will get them to do it. It's like from the outside perspective, you can just you know kind of give them give them some tools maybe i give them the book and i you know i try to encourage them but it really is a very personal choice and i think for anybody who has somebody that's like that in their life to just kind of divorce yourself of any expectations that you're going to be the one that's going to convince them to do it because it's not going to happen and almost the best thing you can do is love them on their whole slide down into that point of desperation and just love them the whole way and you know you can hold up the light of like yeah this is where you should you know this is where you could go and i think you have amazing talent there but just love them the whole way and know that if they're going down into that kind of dark dark hole they maybe need that they maybe need the bounce from the rock bottom so to just kind of like be there be there for them without the desperation of trying to change them which is probably going to make them more ashamed it's probably the most productive thing you can do for people who who you really want to help, you know, kind of face their resistance. Yeah, I agree with you. That, you know, I mean, it's one of the most painful to, trying to help somebody in that state mm-hmm. and thankless things. And you're right. The only thing you can do is kind of be be loving, be embracing, be you know, unconditionally accepting of whatever it is that you know you're there for them if you can be. But, and also, because I, when I see people in that state, I remember how I was in that state, and I don't want to go back to that ever again. It's kind of horrifying, you know? Right. And I'm so grateful that I've somehow turned the corner, and I'm always afraid that that corner's going to turn back on me somehow. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. The only thing you can do is just people, everybody has to follow their own course, whatever it is. And I don't know why God planned it like that. It seems like a crazy way to, you know, have people live their life. But I guess, I guess that's it. It's the hero's journey. It's whatever, you know. We all sort of have to do that. Luke Skywalker has to follow his thing, you know. Um, yeah. And you know, maybe even the collective. One of the things that I talk about now is all of this challenge that's in the collective. This is, in some ways, the dark night of the soul for the world. Yeah, you're really and, right. That you're really onto something there. That's so true. And I yeah. don't know when we're going to bounce and hit that bottom. Right, but maybe we need to. And everybody's scrambling like to try and like fix it, fix it along the way. And that's that's fine. That's great. That's the warrior spirit to try and help you know and fight the battle the whole way. But perhaps we need to get uglier nastier more debased you know more more (laughs) wicked to each other on social media before finally we're like what are we doing and you know honestly these the debates we just saw was a great example of like okay here's where we are never before in history has a debate been like this and i'm very apolitical you know but just watching two grown men bicker at each other in that way it was like okay here we are yeah yeah this is this is a reflection of us yeah and so let's let's just kind of look at this and say when when we've had enough let's change it you know but maybe we haven't had enough yet so more and more if you if you want yeah you know, like if we want let's let's bring it on yeah. let's keep going but eventually we'll be like uh-uh we're done with this you know it's back down now it's time for the noble virtues 
I hope we hit that point at some point. It certainly <laughs> didn't look like it was very promising the other night. Thank God. Yeah. I agree. But I agree. shame at some point has got to kick in collectively. You know, yeah. it's not there at all. We've sort of moved beyond it, you know, through social media, through, you know, our leaders, you know, it's shame has got to return some point. Yeah. And then holding up, the, holding up that kind of the idea of the virtue, what the warrior ethos really was like so many of the great warrior ethos, the Spartan code, the Bushido, the Musar, you know, all of these things, they were codes of living. And even some of the fictional ones, I don't know if you ever read any of uh, Patrick Rothfuss, his books. No, I he wrote a book called, he wrote, wrote a book called uh, The Wise Man's Fear. And in that there's this mythical warrior culture and he creates this construct called the Lethani, which is basically uh, kind of like the Bushido, uh-huh. but it's this fictional. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it's a beautiful rendition of not only how to fight, how to act, but when to fight and when to act. You know, so parts of the Bhagavad Gita, parts of the Tao, uh-huh. parts of the Bushido, parts uh-huh. of the Spartan Code, all kind of woven together in fiction. But that <clears throat> that operating system to live by, you know, is something that we're really missing, is the ethos itself, you know, and like building that ethos. So when you go, if you were to, if you were to offer like the ethos, you know, and say like, All right, what is what is the ethos of virtue that, you know, that people could live by based on everything that you've known from the warrior cultures, knowing the wars that are going to be within and how to treat people in the world? Where would you, where would you start? You know, like how, how would you build this ethos from the ground up and encourage you know, people to do the same? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, Aubrey, lately in, in this, you know, uh, the warrior archetype as I, you know, define it in my own mind, is this not necessarily good thing. It's a real primitive thing that comes from the primitive, in my mind at least, the primitive hunting band, you know, where it's sort of where they have not real virtues, but sort of proto-virtues. And I would equate it to tribal tribal codes, you know, Pashtun Wali or the things that, that our guys have encountered in Iraq and Afghanistan. But the, the bottom line that sort of is for these codes is that they're really an us versus them code. Mm-hmm. You know, the virtues, the warrior virtues of, of courage, of aggressiveness, of loyalty to the, to the tribe, of uh, obedience to, to elders of respect, which are, they're all virtues. But in a tribal culture, in it, they are virtues in an us versus them situation. Where, whereas if you were to, in a tribal situation, if you capture the enemy, you know, you could torture, you know, the hell out of them, right? There's mm. that, that ethical element or that inclusive element that expands out to all humanity is not there. You know, it's, and I think you saw it in the debate. I mean, to me, I'm going to get political here. Trump is in the warrior archetype at the adolescent stage. He's at mm-hmm. like the stage of a 14-year-old where you make fun of handicapped people, you insult women for the way they look, you uh, throw insults where you're, you're just completely in a non... There's no ethical element to that at all. It's simply a warrior win, 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 We'll kill, you know, you know, we'll sacrifice anything just to win. So where the warrior archetype, to me, expands into the warrior ethos is when a moral element 
and it's a picture. And it's like the books you were just talking about there, or Bushido, mm-hmm. or any, or um, the Spartan Code, or uh, the other codes of ethics, where, like, particularly, um, I know you're familiar with in the Israeli army the concept of purity of the weapon. Are you aware mm-hmm. of that thing where the, not, it's not up much. to the, it comes from a biblical verse, and the, the point of it is, when I put a weapon in your hand, you suddenly have the power over other people. If somebody is your prisoner, somebody has put their hands up and come in, you have the power with that weapon in your hand to do anything to them, and you're not allowed to do that. You have to maintain you know, the purity of the weapon, which is, which is about um, if you're given illegal orders, you, you have the right to say no to them, and you have the obligation to say no to them. You know, that, uh, that the that individual... That is one of the beautiful, that is one of the most beautiful parts about the Israeli army, if people don't know that. Yeah, they, they don't know it. The Israelis get a really bad rap. They encourage, you know, the free thinking of an individual if what their morality is, what they see in their morality goes against what they believe to be right. It's their prerogative and almost obligation to actually go against their the orders that are coming in. And at, that's the only army that I know of that allows the individual to make decisions based on what you said, the, the purity of the weapon, the purity of their of their warrior code. Well, I think our guys are sort of given that in a sense of, but maybe it's more lip service than it is, you know, a real code. But in any event, I don't want to judge that because I'm not in the service now and I don't know. But I do think when that that moral element, the ethical element that comes in, is really about the treatment of somebody that's outside of the tribe, somebody that's not us, somebody that's them. And what's really going on in our politics now and why it's become so debased is that element of self-restraint is now gone. You know, we violated all those norms so many times. I mean, Mitch McConnell, I'm going to get too political here, I know. Mm-hmm. You know, with the stonewalling thing with Merrick Garland and putting, you know, the Neil Gorsuch on the court, whatever it was, that was a thing where he just said, fuck it. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit if democracy goes down the toilet. Self, the self-restraint, the respect for the other, for them, for somebody that's not in power at the moment is, I don't care about that anymore. All I want to do is win. And that, I think that's the state we're in. And now we've sort of regressed to, this, to a tribal situation, you know, where it's all about the side we're on and fuck the other guy, you know. And how you come back from that, I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it goes back to Lincoln's what, second inaugural address, the one about with, uh, with, with uh, malice toward none and charity for all and binding up the wounds of the nation after the, after the Civil War. Uh, we, we need somebody at that level, a leader at that level, that can uh, bind us together again, because that, that self-restraint, that ethical part is gone. You know, the, <clears throat> what we have are stories, and the stories are all pointing, they're all pointing to the truth. They're all pointing to this virtue that we're discussing. And, and even the stories, and stories that are real stories, and stories that are fictional stories, even about our own military, about any military, they follow the same thing, this, the same purity of the weapon. And we celebrate that. The people celebrate that. But it's not, it's not something that we're actually demanding or like holding in high enough regard. It reminds me a little bit of what, um, because you're absolutely right. 
our our servicemen, our soldiers, everybody, everybody has that internally. It just may not be this kind of overtly discussed thing where it's like, okay, now make sure you do this. It's just something that comes from within because I think it's it is part of that noble virtue that is within, part of the archetype. But it reminds me a little bit like it's almost like we're in we're in you know you told it you tell a story and i'll let you tell this story but it was about someone who was going to a theater in greece and and he was trying to take a seat and and nobody would get up and uh and then there's the difference between greece and athens why don't i I don't want to butcher your story so why don't you tell that story because i feel like you know that that actually speaks to what we're going through right now ah yeah I, i wish i could remember where i read this it was probably in plutarch somewhere but supposedly the ancient Olympic Games, which were held at Olympia, and if you've ever been there, you know, there's a stadium and the whole thing, and you can still go there. And uh, apparently the way it worked in the ancient days was everybody sat city by city. So the Spartans would be all in one place, and the Athenians would be in another, and the Argives would be in another. And on some particularly really hot day, an old man came into the stadium while it was packed, right? And nobody would get up and give him a seat. And he passed through the Athenian section and nobody stood up at all. And passed through the Argive section, nobody stood up. And now the crowd started jeering him, started making fun of him and yelling at him and hooting and da-da-da. And he went through like two more sections and nobody stood up. And finally he crossed in the Spartan section. And as soon as his foot hit the floor, every Spartan stood up to offer his seat. And at that point, the stadium burst into cheers. And one observer said, you see, the Greeks know what is right, but only the Spartans actually do it. <laughs> but again, that's that was it. sort of really respect for elders, which is, that's, that's a great, you know, ethical thing, but it's not big enough to take in, you know, what, what we need now, you know, because it could be just elders in your own tribe. That's true. And I think, but, but ultimately that idea that I believe we know what's right. Somewhere we know what's right. <laughs> right, but we're, we're just not just, doing it. We're not Spartan enough to yeah. do it. We haven't trained ourselves enough with enough discipline, with enough practice, with enough will and enough courage to actually do what we know is right. Yeah. You know, at the same time, we'll just allow our kind of baser nature to just take over and our our desire for comforts our desire for the petty tribalism the desire to make everybody else other instead of self living a different life like we i think we know it we just don't have the we don't have the toughness the training the courage the will that spartan will to just do what's right you and know, demand the other what's right thing i think of this Aubrey, like and i know you're a believer in this when we talk about inclusion and the other it really needs to go beyond just uh, partisan politics to the earth itself, you know, to the oceans, Green. to the air, and to future generations, to you know what we're leaving to our children, our grandchildren, that they are not the other that we can say fuck you. We're gonna, you know, but what's happened, and this is really, I have to blame the left for this, if I'm getting political again, mm-hmm. is those calls to virtue are phrased now in such a shitty way, in such a nanny state way, you know, that I don't blame people for being pissed off, you know, that, you know, when people um, put out a call for, you know, um, climate 
consciousness, you know, that we, we do need to, you know, evolve beyond fossil fuels and all that sort of stuff. But the way it's presented oftentimes is in such a kind of a shaming way, such a scolding sort of way that I don't blame people for saying, you know, hey, I've got my big pickup truck and you're not going to take it away from me. Um, so we somehow we got to find a language that both sides can relate to. You know, it's why I think I'm sure people hated Lincoln in the South, no matter how great we might think he is looking back. But it seems to me that he was a great poet, you know? I mean, he was able to put things into words. Um, we need something, so a new language that can somehow unite people, I think. Yeah. Uh, we need some great leader, something. Some I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think I think we need many, many great leaders yeah. and many, yeah. many great, many great stories. And what you're saying, I think, is right, because part of what's happening with this whole climate change is this idea that's that humans are a virus, humans are a disease to the earth. <laughs> and and you know, if we were just gone, everything would be great. But it's it you to accept that you have to have so, a lot of self-hatred about of human beings and hatred of you know the the collective self of human beings which then doesn't help anything at all true because you know so so i think that's exactly what you're pointing to it's like we are the earth we're literally made up of the earth we eat little bits of earth and drink the water of the earth and breathe the air of the earth so that actually we grow and our cells turn over we're inexorable from the earth we are a part of it and as shepherds of this planet as part of it, we can do more for ourselves. We're just healing our collective self. And it's that message of oneness, you know, which is at the base of every spiritual tradition. It's that message of oneness, that that actual spiritual, you know, truth, that kernel that I think has been lost. And I think that's what needs to come back in for us to see that, oh, it's not that tree I'm cutting down. You know, that tree is a part of me because I'm a part of the earth. So if I'm cutting it down, you know, I better be cutting it down for a good reason. Yeah, yeah. It's part of my lungs. It's part of my, it's part of the thing that, you know, turns over the soil and sequesters the carbon, the carbon that I'm made of. It's it's all of these things. Let me be conscious about this. You know, I think you're really onto something, Aubrey, when you talk about the collective, which is really new to me. I'm not, I haven't really thought about that very much. I'm, I'm much more in the individual, you know, inside my own head. But you're right, there's a tremendous... You know, that sort of scolding thing that goes on, that's a form of resistance. That's a collective thing, you know, that comes from individuals who are, you know, like me and like you, running away from their own selves, you know, from their, you know, they, from their own dark side and turning that outward onto their brothers and sisters, even though it's for a good cause, quote unquote, it, it, polarizes again you know mm. i i don't know what the answer is but right. i think you're really onto something with the collective it's a real this is a real collective issue but you can't separate collectiveness from individuals because we are individuals that's you it. know that make up this this group thing that's it so and i think that's a great way to look at it because the collective can seem so overwhelming and so complicated like let's bring it let's bring it back to the self that's one thing that we can all it's hard enough i mean it's hard enough yeah. to manage the self you know so if we focus on that i think that's like that's the key insight so you know one thing that you've done which is a great service to the world you put a capital r on resistance and as the greeks did with the daemon they made it this 
internal slash external thing, this force that's within us and also without us. And, and it really makes a lot of sense. It allows us to separate that part of us that is actually acting on us, keeping us from going from the lower place to the higher place in any, in any which way or form. Um, talk, about, talk about that. Talk about you know, what your beliefs are on resistance, if that has changed at all since writing War of Art and writing Turning Pro. Like what, when you think of resistance... What is that to you now? You know, let me go. I'm going to go back for a second, Aubrey. Bring this question back in. I just had a flash. Now I want to throw yep. this out there before I forget it. Sure. The, the time that we're in now with um, social media and with the utter hyper individualism that's going on, it seems really dark, but I'm just having a flash that maybe there's something good here. You know, I'm thinking that. Um, you know, everybody today practically has to have a brand, right? You have to sort of, we're, we're all sort of coming down to who am I? What is my calling? How do I get there? And then once I'm there, um, how do I focus my, you know, my, my brand, right? How do I find myself as a single drop in this, in this ocean? And I think that I'm thinking back to my father and mother's generation. They never thought about that stuff. I think we're into sort of a new world that is really hard and we're learning. We're on a real tough learning curve. Uh, I'm, you know, my mom and dad and, and their generation, they would, you know, you would go to work for IBM, you would go to work for the post office, you would go to work for the State Department, that would be your career the whole time through, right? You never really had to think about who am I really? What is, you know, what is my daemon? What is my calling? You never had to do that. You never had to really sort of find your place amid this sea of other people who are competing just like you for attention or for whatever it is. And uh, so life was a lot easier then. We think about the greatest generation. They did a lot. Of, they did great shit. But I don't think they had to face the dark stuff that we, the dark individual sense of loss of spiraling in some meaningless cosmos like like we do. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if they were here, they would tell us differently. So maybe we should cut ourselves a little slack, our generation and all of mm. us who are going through this, that maybe down the road, 10 or 20 years when we get a handle on this, it's sort of like when television first came in. It kind of blew everybody's minds. You know, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. And, and, and then when the internet came in, it blew everybody's minds too because there was this whole new thing which still blowing our minds. So maybe that's it, that we're sort of learning to navigate and, and maybe we're trying to find our individual identities and callings and then find our place within the greater collective, including people who don't agree with us at all. Anyway... I just wanted to get that out before I, I forgot yeah, it. I think that's a really good line of thinking because I think we were, it was much easier to be a, a nationalist and have real pride in your country. You know, I, and I think that was something that a lot of former generations have. And some of us still have that in certain ways, but you know, our government has let us down in so many different ways. And it's, it's more difficult to have this kind of nationalistic pride and I think we're, we we want to belong to a tribe. We want to belong to a collective. We want to believe in the companies we work for. But everything is kind of, we've seen through the facades of everything. We've seen the corruptions. We've seen the different greed. We've seen all of these things. And so what we're left with is, 
Well, I, I, you know, I love my country and I love, you know, this thing and I love my company, but really this is about me. And so the emphasis has been placed on the individual and that's why we're all creating individual brands. And it's like, look, I got to look out for me. I got to look out for my direct family. And this individualism has replaced this collectivism, even though the collectivism had a tribalistic element, you know, we were going to wars and we were fighting other countries and other people. And maybe what's happening is, is that all of these different constructs, these intermediate tribal constructs of nation, of creed, of all of these different things, they're all starting to disintegrate a little bit. We're going to the individual so that perhaps, now if you follow this story arc, maybe this is the necessary you know, ordeal that we're all, or approach to the inmost cave at least. Maybe the ordeal's coming later, but that approach into the darkness where we're going to radical individualism so that eventually we can break out to radical, completely inclusive collectivism of the entire world where we've burst through all of these little lines that have been drawn on a map and little identities that have been collectivized. And we're saying like, no, I am an individual, but I am part of the whole ocean, which is the whole earth. And, and maybe this is the necessary thing. We had to break down a lot of these other structures, go back to the individual so then we could go back to the one. I think that may, you know, that may be something there, you know, Aubrey, it's really, it sounds really good. Because it I don't good. think it's a good story. I don't think any generation in history has ever had to face this issue, you know, yeah. to first to kind of boil yourself down to your, to your utter individual core, whatever that may be from previous lives or whatever, and then not stay there, but without losing that, embrace the greater, uh, collective with love with compassion with you know um no i don't think that's that's ever happened you know what happens sometimes is individuals like in nazi germany or they they can't stand to be alone the isolation and the alienation of being an individual and so they surrender and submerge themselves into you know a, a cult dynamic you know a collectivism where they just vanish and but to do to be able to be collective and keep that individual sense it's maybe maybe we're onto something here yeah. you know i was just as a little sidebar you think about athletes if you were on the new york yankees if you were whitey ford or mickey mantle or hank bauer back in the 1950s you were the yankees the whole way right you know they weren't going to fire you you were going to play your whole career with them but now with free agency, which is really a, 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 a metaphor for our whole lives, right? Every player knows it's a business. You can be traded. You're on the, tr- you know, Scottie Pippen can be traded at any moment off the Bulls, even mm-hmm. though he's the second best player in the world, right? And yep. uh, so all of us sort of, you know, that's part of this entering the dark cave, right? We realize that, you know, we're very expendable. And what are we going to do about that? But wouldn't it be great if you if we were going into a dark cave that we finally came out of? I I don't know what it, what that is, but well, I'm I'm starting to see it, <laughs> and this is what I'm starting <laughs> Tell to see. Tell me, let me in on the. There's people who believe this same thing that we're talking about. That it is that we are we are a drop in the ocean, as Rumi says. We are a drop in the ocean, as well as an ocean as the ocean in a drop right? So we understand our individual nature and also that we are also everything at the same time. And then bands of these people of of that same sentiment of that same spirit 
are coming together and joining. And that's, you know, this fellowship, the Fit for Service Fellowship. I'm yeah. seeing this happen. I in take real my time. hat We're off to you for doing that. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. It's been beautiful. I mean, we're going through rites of passage together. We're going through challenging things. We're opening up. We're being radically vulnerable. Tears and, and all the different things that come, celebrations, everything that you would go through if you're trying to build this kind of union. But it's starting, it's starting to form where it's all a bunch of individuals but we're not bound by any other idea other than other than oneness other than a you know a reverence for the mystery of all yeah and, and that i think is starting to happen so this new team and this is the team of one it's starting to form you know it's starting to happen like the 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 union between the individuals that are forming this new tribe which is the only tr the one tribe there is no other tribe uh -huh. than this tribe. It's the tribe of human and earth in synergy. Yeah. I think it's starting to form. And, and that's going to be the thing that needs to have the momentum to really embrace the entire earth and birth forth new leaders from that new team and new tribe. Yeah. And just I hope reach you're across right. all the line. That's that's the way. That's how we that's how we move through this. Yeah, I hope you're right. And I really I take my hat off to you to you for what you're doing in that in that case you know yeah, i'll tell well, you i'll I mean, tell you a little go, go ahead it. no you go ahead it's just it's a small it's a small group that i'm doing but it's an idea it's like a it's like a model it's like a it's like a proof of concept of yeah. what it could be and that's what's encouraging and hopefully i know that i'm not the only one it's i think but I, I do believe that's the uh that's the path forward and i i do think there are a lot of other groups out there that are doing no the same thing you know no uh, doubt suburban housewives for whatever you know that yeah. you know there are lots of people doing that on a on a super grassroots level that nobody knows about never gets reported in the press um i just i hope that 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 does come to fruition somewhere um yeah. you're really living the ideals of the 60s whether you realize it or not it's kind of you know complete with a sort of psychedelic element of the thing and uh that's a great that's a great thing yeah it's it's that but it's the difference is is that in the 60s there was still the there was still resistance rather than radical inclusion it was like ugh government you know like ugh all of these other aspects and there was this kind of dropout resistance kind of idea and i think the new renaissance is like yeah all right this is tough you know it's tough to it's tough to have love for you know the 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 challenging aspects of our life but you know we have examples of the spiritual leaders that many of us really look up to like ramdas for example ramdas who had his guru on his mantle that he would go when he would go worship and he had a picture of donald trump on his mantle oh i didn't know and that huh? he had a picture of donald trump because that was the hardest person for uh -huh. him to have radical love uh -huh. and compassion oh, that's for. great that's great you know so and it's this this other idea of like yeah whatever you think that's okay, but you got to love them too because they're part of the same team. There's only one team. There's not two teams. There's one team. So you got to love that's everybody. And that's, and, part so, that's part of that's us part too. That's part of us too. That's part of us too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's zoom let's zoom back into let's zoom back into the to the personal because, you know, as we go through this journey, if if we're talking about this massive collective hero's journey that we're all on, we're also on these individual heroes journey, individual artists journey too. And I want to talk about the difference of both. But in our own heroes journey, this force of resistance, this thing you gave a capital R and, and offered as, all right, this is the thing that's acting against you. You know, the thing that you're going to be pushing up against. 
you wrote about it extensively and beautifully in in the war of art in turning pro and and just in your language is just incredible and i think it really gives us a, like a great respect for this force like okay this is a formidable enemy i'll just read this this is this is too good because i go i go through this all i read this to people all the time you say <clears throat> Resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole. Resistance is protean. It will assume any form. If that's what it takes to deceive you, it will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double-cross you as soon as your back is turned. If you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get. Resistance is always lying and always full of shit. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> it's yeah. true. So this is, you know, this is this idea of this force. And and I just would love for you to expand upon, you know, as time has progressed, what you think this force is, how much of it is internal, how much of it is collective, and, and has your attitude towards it changed at all over the years? Um, that's another great question. I mean, I, I place it in some external place in my mind, but mm -hmm. I may be completely wrong. It's just a metaphor. But, um, you know, my, uh, my rabbi, Rabbi Mordecai Finley, explained this to me, and this is, I think, in, might be in Turning Pro, um, that he said that in, in um, Jewish mysticism, we operate, we're on this level here, the material plane, and above us is the, the higher plane, the soul, the neshama. And that the soul is reaching down to us in a good way, trying to pull us up to become, to reach our higher self. And we on the lower plane are reaching up to the soul, which would be the equivalent of prayer. Or if it's you and me sitting down to write, it's us sort of saying, give, give me an idea. You know, please, you know, what, you know, you're trying to reach that. And in between these two is this force that they call the Yetzer Hara. And the Rabbi Finley translates translate this as a turning toward evil. But he said to me, what, what, uh, that's what you call resistance. So that's the first philosophy that I've ever heard where anybody actually talked about that. And so I don't know whether this middle force is in here or out there, but I know it's absolutely real. And, and like that passage that you read, nothing in the ensuing years for me has lessened my respect for that force at all. I mean, it's, it never goes away. It never lessens. It's, it's, you know, when you think about it, you say, I say to myself, why is that there? You know, why is that even part of the world? Why would God, if he was designing the world, put this negative force? But there is evil, you know? And there is, and life would really have no meaning if we didn't have to. You know, you say, choose your struggle, right? You and Joe Rogan, choose your struggle. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that's so, so pertinent is because there is a fucking struggle. You know, it's baked into the cake, you know? As soon as we pop out of our mother's womb, it's right there, you know? And so the only way that I've found, and I guess you would feel the same way, is to embrace it, you know, to accept it. That that's, and it comes back to our whole kind of warrior concept that if it's a struggle, you got to fight it somehow. We're in a fight. We're in a war. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So 
I don't know if it's if resistance is out there or in here, but it really doesn't matter because right. it's it's for real, but it's also self-created. It's not like we're having to fight something like uh, a saber-toothed tiger or something like that. If we can just burst its bubble, then we can do our thing. We can do our work. So it's not really real, but it's real. <laughs> All right, so anybody who has a small business or any business of any size that's shipping tangible goods, you got to know about ShipStation. I can remember back in the day, back in the really early days, I had just homies like putting out packing slips, slapping them on different packages, and then filling up trash bags and taking them to USPS. Like that's where we begun. And now where we are at on it right now, we wouldn't be able to be where we are logistically and get all of those orders out. I mean, we have an enormous amount of orders without the convenience and ease and professionalism of ShipStation. ShipStation really covers all of your logistical needs when it comes to shipping tangible packages. Whether you're selling on Shopify, Amazon, eBay, your own website, ShipStation really brings everything into one simple interface and it makes it really easy to manage from any device. You can manage it from your phone. Obviously, if you have a bigger business, you'll have a bunch of different systems in place, but it works with USPS, FedEx, UPS, International, and it's just the absolute best thing that we've done from a logistical standpoint as far as a piece of software. And it's probably the reason why ShipStation is the number one choice for online sellers. So if you have a business, you ship tangible goods, please check it out. Go to ShipStation.com, use the code AMP, and you can try it out for 60 days. And it's just going to make the heavy lifting, the logistics so much easier so that you can get back to doing what you do best, which is serve your customers the absolute best thing possible. So ShipStation.com slash AMP. One of the things that's helped me, and I'd love to talk about some individual cases where resistance has been particularly insidious and, and, and hidden from us, but one of the things that's really helped me, and it's a very stoic philosophy, is to understand that resistance is the grindstone for our sword, the sword of our soul. Like without it, we would not be able to sharpen it. We would not, it's the, it's the gravity in the weight room. Like have fun lifting kettlebells if there's no gravity. You know, kettlebells on the moon are useless. They don't do anything. They will not make you stronger. No, right? Like, I like that, Aubrey. I haven't even thought about that. It's a great way of looking at it. So it is. It is an ally in a in a weird way. It's it's the thing that allows us to grow stronger because we need to push against something. We need to break down muscle to adapt and grow stronger. So there's a deep respect at the lower level, but don't get it confused for being something that's going to help you. It will try to fuck you up. Right. So it's like, I respect you and I thank you for being there because you're honing the sword of my soul. But you, you are, you are a true, true badass villain, you know? And, and, and I think for me, and I'd love to hear this, I've found all of this, these crazy insidious ways where resistance was acting that I didn't know it was acting. And, and one of the ways is, you know, I've been, I, I was, you know, subsequently you know in the time since we've talked i was able to write uh two different one well at first i thought i was writing this book it was called go for your win it was my first book uh but nobody wanted to publish it um it wasn't really like a book i kind of modeled it after one of your one of your books like war of art or something it was all individual uh, you know 120 chapters you know broken down into uh -huh. sections it was cool and it was really good and I, I turned it into an online course 
experienced a lot of resistance and then eventually wrote a real book own the day which was an incredible success and i feel really blessed it was deep deep in resistance and have been battling resistance in all of my artistic endeavors since you know so the warrior code and my desperation got me to got me through on it but the writing and all of these things that i didn't have to do because i wasn't desperate anymore uh-huh. but but i felt called to that's when resistance has been acting the most and what i've noticed is it will literally do anything to keep you from your work so i have i have some dietary sensitivities you know if i eat bad i get a lot of inflammation uh-huh. and i get really tired and i almost feel sick uh-huh. if i don't eat really clean but when i was going to to start writing and also when everything happened in the collective and i felt really called to stand forward and and then there was the fear the fear that i wouldn't be good enough the fear that i would fail the fear that it wouldn't be enough i would find myself eating a bunch of shitty food ah and then i would be real and then i would feel really sick ah. and then i wouldn't be able to write right yeah and then eventually i realized like why do i keep eating this food like, i don't <laughs> care that much about food and i was like oh this is resistance it's resistance acting through my subconscious having me reach to that fried food so that i eat the fried food and then i'm so like tired the next day that i don't write a single fucking thing and i was like aha aha hello resistance <laughs> i see you working in your sneaky ways and even though I think like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have this, you know, blooming onion from fucking Outback Steakhouse yeah, or something, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was resistance for me acting in that, in that way. And, and, and when you see it like that and say, okay, resistance, like I see you and now I'm not going to abide by that, but I still battle with it. I still, it's still so, it's so strong and so like so potent that it'll still steer me in these directions to keep me from doing my work. Yeah, and once you've seen through it one way with the bloom and onion, immediately yeah. it's coming up with another thing, you know, no that's going to be sneaking you behind you. I mean, one of the things that happens with me is I'll hurt myself, you know, I'll mm. I'll get some kind of injury, you know, I'll drop a, a dumbbell on my foot, you know, and at the, you know that kind of thing, and then I have an excuse that I can't really do this, I can't really do that. But yeah, it is absolutely insidious and you can never, in my estimation, never underestimate it, you know, never think like, oh, I got these guys, you know, it's like, it's like Putin, you know, they're Mm. doing, you know, God only knows what they're, what, what's crap they're doing right now, you know, they're never, they're, they never rest and resistance never rests. Yeah. (laughs) I always think of, uh, whenever I think of putin i just think of that picture of him riding a horse with his shirt oh, yeah and yeah, a, and a gun yeah. Just i'm thinking like, of him with the internet research thing or whatever it was you know the yeah. trolls he's, you know I mean, whatever whatever yeah. he's doing he's yeah. he's doing um yeah it's uh it's it's something to always be you know i think respecting your adversary is a is a key is a key lesson for every mma fighter every champion that i've ever talked to like the moment they don't respect their adversary the moment they make you know their opponent a buster douglas you know they're gonna get you're gonna yeah, get knocked yeah, out yeah yeah let me ask you something aubrey what was the difference for you working to establish on it or working on your writing it seems like you're saying there was two whole different dynamics going on can there you was. talk about that for a second yeah so on it on it was I was in such a desperate place it was it was me when you know it was you when you were in that apartment and 
all the chasing the uh-huh. girls, all the drinking, all of that was just no longer working and life could not go on in the same way. So there was so much desperation that I, w- I had nothing, I had nothing really to lose uh-huh. anymore. Uh-huh. And at the point where you have nothing to lose, resistance doesn't have as strong a force. Uh-huh. Like you've really sapped all of its momentum uh-huh. because you have no fear, you have nothing to lose. So when I went out with on it, I was like, I'm going all the way in. And if I die, I die. I'm already fucking dead. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter, uh-huh. you know? And and that was that was that initial thing. And that's where the warrior, the warrior archetype was. Like, I'm gonna go out on my shield. I'm gonna go with my shield or go home uh-huh. on it. Uh-huh. You know, like literally go home on it. Uh-huh. Like either way, it's gonna be on it. Uh-huh. You know? And that was that was the difference. But with the writing and with that other work, it was not absolutely necessary for me to survive to 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 live my life so it was extra it was extra upon that and yes my soul desperately wanted to do it but not so much that i that i was in the same position it was uh-huh. it was something where i could comfortably not do it i didn't have to write anything i never had to write a book uh-huh. i never had to write go for your win i never i didn't have to do the, do a podcast i didn't have to do this extra stuff because i'd created on it and that was enough to give me you know safety security a purpose uh-huh. in life so th- i think that was the main difference one was sheer desperation and the other was a combination of a deep calling and i needed that inspiration and that that ability to push towards something that i was scared uh-huh. about really failing because i had something to lose at that point uh-huh okay great that's a great answer yeah so in, in <clears throat> it's just uh it's interesting that you know I think a lot of us are in that position. Sometimes we'll have that desperation, but when we don't, we have to act from inspiration. And when we have to act from inspiration, that's where you know the warrior archetype has to really come in, and also our understanding of resistance and and our willingness to push past all of these fears really comes in. By the way, would you mind if I, you know, for my warrior archetype series, if I pulled some some moments from this podcast that we're doing now? And 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 did and made a little warrior. I would warrior. love that. I would be deeply honored. Because okay, be... great. Because you're definitely a real example of what I'm trying to talk about. And yeah. I'm sure when I look back through what we're talking about today, there'll be some great moments. Okay, great. Thank you. I'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, let's talk about let's. So let's talk about this um, as it pertains to the artist journey, because this was this. I think i've loved all of your i've loved all of your non-fiction works and i've loved your, your fiction works too and if we have time i'll talk a little bit about tides of war which was really interesting to me particularly um of course gates of fire as well but tides of war was something that i don't think a lot of people a lot of people know the the 300 story and know the story of leonidas and and the spartans at thermopylae and we're we're kind of on we understand that but as far as your your non-fiction works the artist's journey i thought was like Oh wow. This was really expanding my understanding because you posit that the artist's journey happens after the hero's journey. It's a it's a secondary journey that happens. And this is really what we're talking about. On it was the culmination of a hero's journey where uh-huh. I was so desperate, I was willing to go into uh-huh. the dark, I was willing to face anything, and it didn't matter. And I was gonna show up as my warrior self and actually make this uh-huh. thing happen no matter what. And I kind of completed that, but the the next step, the artist's journey, that's where resistance really, really kicked in and started kicking my ass. And I've had to battle with it, and I huh. still battle with it all the time in my own artist's journey, like bringing my art forward into the world. So talk about how you kind of understood that 
the the hero there's the hero's journey and then there's the artist's journey that follows after that um it just uh, i've just been thinking about this for a long time and we're we're all familiar from joseph campbell with the concept of the hero's journey and you know you go out and you face the dragons and then there's the return home and and uh um and you return with with a gift for the people quote unquote but i was started to wonder you know well, what comes after that you know once odysseus is home what comes after that and for me uh, looking at my own life, I can really divide my life absolutely in half. Like we were talking earlier, or touching on earlier about um, the, the period of my life when I was driving trucks and picking fruit and working on oil rigs and all that sort of stuff. And that was that was kind of my hero's journey, where where resistance dominated everything for me, and I, you know, um, so much so that I couldn't do anything. It was just like you coming up to the moment at Bonnet, you know. And at the end of it, I finally, I kind of hit a point where I did sort of, I found my calling. I said, I'm a writer. I don't give a shit. I'm not, you know, I don't care what's going to happen. I can't do anything else. I'll kill myself if I do something. I'm going to do it, whatever happens, you know. So then things change. Now you've kind of found what you were meant to do. You've been lost. You've been wandering. You didn't know what you were put on this earth for. Now you've kind of found it. So things change. Now the question becomes, what the fuck are you going to do about it? You know, mm-hmm. how, how are you going to structure your day? How are you going to structure your month, your year? What, how are you going to make money? How are you going to support your family? How are you going to conduct yourself when the shit hits the fan? And that becomes a whole different journey. It's no longer the hero's journey. It's the artist's journey. It's like, uh, you know, I always envy somebody like Bob Dylan or Neil Young that hit their artist's journey when they were like 19 years old, you know? And they maybe they had some crazy hero's journey in Hibbing, Minnesota. I don't know what. But at that point, they knew what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. They knew they were musicians. They knew they were artists. They knew they what they were going to do. And now all they had to figure out was how I'm going to do that. If I'm Neil Young, am I going? To, where am I going to get Crazy Horse? Or am I going to be with Crosby, Stills, and Nat? You know, what am I going to do? Um, and that's the journey that you're on now, and that's yep. a journey that I've been on for a long time. And one other sort of thing for our, our people who are listening to this, for me, there wasn't one moment. It wasn't where it just sort of turned the corner and all of a sudden I was on a different thing. It really was like 20 years. You know, there was a kind of a, that moment I talked about in my sublet apartment. Where I said, okay, now I'm, I'm a writer, I'm going to be a writer, I don't give a shit. But then it took another 20 years of struggling and, and many other kind of moments like that, artist journey moments, before I kind of finally reached the stage where I really was writing from my own heart and really writing from my own words. You know, I was a screenwriter for about 10 years and basically... I was writing, I was working, I was in my field, I was doing what I wanted to do, but but I was writing a Western and a science fiction, and you know, it, it wasn't really me. But in any event, the artist's journey is when you turn pro, you know, and when you kind of ask yourself in a real realistic sense, how the fuck am I going to do this? How am I going to make this work? And what what and again the warrior ethos and the warrior archetype really comes in there. I think you have to call on all those virtues, you know. And the, probably the number one virtue is patience. Mm-hmm. You know, just like a hunter will wait outside the burrow of a of his prey, and just or you know a lion will just sit there all day waiting for that you know other animal to make a move. But in any event, those virtues need are need to be applied 
at this point when you're on the artist's journey. And the reason I, I wrote the book is I wanted to give people a sense uh, who are lost that maybe you might say to yourself, oh shit, I'm, I'm just coming out of my hero, that's what it is, or I've just turned the corner, now I'm on my artist's journey, and, and, and get a sense of where you are, like a roadmap, like I'm really not crazy to be thinking about a home office or moving to Montana or I'm going to work three jobs but then I'm going to carve out an hour or do my real stuff that that's that's artist journey stuff it's uh I, I love you know some of the things that you you talk about in there that the and, and I want to talk about the metaphysical kind of cosmos that you created because I think that's really important but what you're saying is that we all have art that we're creating and the art that we're creating is serving the capital s self it's an expression of the capital s self the unborn the undying aspect of ourself that yes. extends beyond and the collective the small and self, our brothers and, and sisters yeah right and and we all have art and that's the thing like sometimes we reduce art to certain literary works or paintings or things like that but our art can be expressed in yeah. in any infinite amount of ways it's our gift you know, it's our gift to the world, our gift to the people, our gift to the collective, exactly. the expression of yeah. our capital S yeah. self. And we all have that. So we're all, there's nobody who's outside. Well, I'm not an artist, you know, so I'm never going to be on the artist journey. Uh-uh, not true. You are an artist, you know, and that's something that the Toltecs talk about. Actually, the word Toltec means, you know, the artist. It oh, means the, it? I didn't it know means that. the uh. one who's, who's creating the art in their, in their life, the Nagua, you know, the, the one who's has the paintbrush in their hand and is painting the masterpiece of their own life. And, and we're all doing that in a, in a certain way. But to really understand that, let's talk about all of these different aspects. We've covered resistance. And I think a lot of people understand you know, the small self, the ego, the personality that wants to succeed and wants to have a name and wants to you know, carve, out their, carve out their reputation and, and receive the pleasures of life. And then there's that what you call the capital S self. And there's a lot of words that you use. You use soul, neshama, muse, capital S self, the still small voice inside, which might come from Ram Dass. I actually don't know where that, that comes from. Um, I'm not sure either. The Bible, maybe. I don't know. Maybe the Bible. Maybe yeah. even deeper. Yeah, deeper yeah. in that. So so what what to you, when you think about this, the you know, if we're going for them, okay, we got the small self, the ego self, and then the capital S self. What is the capital S self? You know, like what is this? What is this to you? And and all of these words that you've you've kind of used, which are all great ways to describe it. What is the essence of that thing? Um, to me, I use it in the Jungian sense. You know, he was really the one that I first heard it from, and it's it's the greater self that includes uh, the unconscious, the collective unconscious. That includes all of humanity, all of the earth, all of uh, you know, all of everything, and in into into the future, future generations, past generations, and it also this is um, you know where I'm sitting right now, right up the hill there above me. This is in the War of Art. Used to live um, Tom Laughlin, the guy who did Billy Jack, was the actor that did Billy Jack, and he became a Jungian therapist in his kind of later years. And one of the things that, uh, and I took a class from him up at his house right up there. And he drew this model that I have in a war of art. And it has this little dot in the middle and that's the self. That's kind of this ego thing that 
like you say, wants to have a job, wants to you know chase women, wants to make money, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then around it, much bigger, is this greater self that includes all of these other, all of humanity, service to others, that kind of thing. And then butting up against that with three arrows was this thing that he called the divine ground. And I don't think, maybe that's from Jung, it might be from other scholars, but the gist of it is that we're really talking about God. We're talking about a divine dimension, something beyond the human. And when we talk about, when a writer or an artist talks about the muse, you know, the goddesses that live on Mount Olympus and that inspire us, that's kind of what we're talking about. And the artist's journey, to me, is opening up the channels to that divine ground, you know, and writers know it and athletes know it. Uh, you know, you know, a triathlete, I'm sure, hits a point, you know, beyond exhaustion when everything kicks in and you can just run forever, right? Mm -hmm. Or a writer, you'll hit a point where you you just wrote four pages, you don't even remember writing them, right? And mm -hmm. and they're great. When you look at them, you go, "Holy shit, did I do that?" You know, and <laughs> yeah, obviously you didn't do it. You know, it comes from this other dimension. So Jung was tremendously into this idea of of the self and and uh, the unconscious, the collective unconscious, the archetypes of the unconscious, the greater this greater being that's not just us. And I think my whole theory of resistance is that resistance is the ego, that little black dot in the middle, fighting us when we try to identify with the greater ego. Because the ego doesn't want to lose control. You know, it's that little shitty guy up at the conning tower of the giant super tanker. You know, he's got the wheel and, hey, I'm in control of this thing, you know? And um, that's my theory of it. But in any event, in many ways, I think our whole life purpose is to get to that bigger self, to I and to identify with that bigger self. And it probably has something to do with the collective. Now that I'm starting to think about that, thanks to you, the greater self includes includes everybody. Yeah, I, the greater self, in my own in my own understanding, it abides in the oneness. It abides uh -huh. in you know what Ram Dass again would call soul land. It abides in that place where it doesn't see the separation. So it lives in the it lives it abides in the higher ground. It abides in the divine ground in the collective that we're talking about. And that's a great word. Abide. I really like that. It's great. <laughs> Thanks. It, 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 and I think the ego. One of the ways that I've understood the ego is <clears throat> the ego is a construct that we've created and fueled with our own belief. And like an imagine it being an entity so the ego is an entity and what is the prerogative of any entity well it's to survive yeah the number one prerogative of any entity is to survive and the moment that we stop believing in the ego and really making it real it's dying it's dying it, it's, it's starting to lose the, that force that makes it live it's the it's the story of peter pan when you don't believe in tinkerbell when tinkerbells start to die yeah, right? like yeah you have yeah. to believe in it for it to you have to believe in it for it to exist and i think the the less we believe in the ego the more it starts to freak out like i'm i'm disintegrating i'm disintegrating into into nothingness and so it's going to fight like hell it's going to make you afraid it's going to cause you to be scared and then go back to the ego and then care about all of these other things yeah so i think you're absolutely right like a lot of this resistance comes from the ego's desperate attempt to maintain control of this entire organism that we have and prevent us from leaving it behind 
And actually, it's not even going to, it's never going to kill it, but it's just going to put it in this kind of diminished capacity where it's just, it's there, but it's not who you identify yeah. with anymore. So it's not the same entity. And it doesn't yet, like that. We really do need the ego too, you know, because the writing Absolutely. process or any artistic process is the inspiration. And then the ego comes in to sort of like an editor that says, hmm, let me think about this, you know, maybe that's <laughs> not so great, that whole thing, you know. So we do have to respect the ego as well. But uh, um, yeah, it's harmony. Yeah, we're, we could, creating, you know, we're creating a harmony between the, the capital S self and the lower S self. Are you, and that's are you the, that's aware of Richard do. Rohr? Do you know about him? Mm -mm. R-O-H-R. He's a, he's a Franciscan monk who is, who, what's, uh, I'm trying to remember the book. Anyway, his concept is he, he does podcasts and he speaks and he's around. You know, if you Google him, you'll find him. He's everywhere. Um, his concept is that it's sort of like the artist's journey and the hero's journey, a parallel to that. He says there's a first half of life and the second half of life. And in the first half of life, it's all about the ego. It's finding uh, our occupation, a way to support our family, finding an identity in the world, find, you know, taking care of business, sort of building a structure. He said, I think he calls it like building a cylinder. And then the second half of life is, is the artist's journey, and it's kind of filling that cylinder. It's sort of like, okay, I'm on the planet. I've got a car. I've, I've got two sons. Now what the fuck do I do, you know? Why <laughs> right. am I here? And that becomes, I'd say, a parallel to the, from the small self to the big self. And that's when more of the collective comes in and the idea of serving or of helping or mentoring or encouraging others who are on the same journey you were on. So he's really good, Richard Rohr. I'm blanking on his, his great book. But anyway, I highly recommend him. And that is that is an absolute part of it. When you've gone through and you've found mentors, like you know, you were a, a mentor for me, and still are in that way. And so, but also, and you're a mentor, a mentor to me. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you, brother. I, you know, but ultimately, part of the journey is when you've gone through it, then you become the mentor to others. And this is the cycle. Right. This is the, which is a continuation the, of your you, journey. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is really important. There's one other aspect of this, and I think we've, you know, we've talked about most of it. The other, the other aspect that stands out is you start in the artist journey, you start talking about the daemon, which is an ancient Greek concept of, and, and the way that I've, and I'm actually writing a lot about the daemon. I'm, I'm writing a new book called Master Your Mind, Master Your Life. Ah. And I'm thinking about, I was thinking about the daemon, this force that's acting on us. And all of these forces that we're talking about are in the, in the same metaphysical construct that I'm talking about for the mind. The daemon to me is an interesting thing because it's it, again it's a part of us, but it's also not a part of us. And you do you do you write some great you know some great words about the daemon, some very inspired words that feel like you weren't there when you wrote yeah. So like you're you absolutely the, right. Yeah, yeah. When you wrote the nine laws of the daemon, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and talked about and it, I think there are a lot of other laws I didn't mention. <laughs> Yeah, it's immortal, divine, inhuman, monstrous, creative, closer to you than anything, not you. Ignore it and it will kill you and it contains the meaning of your life. And I was we were reading that and we were like, "Whoa." Like that is that really is this thing. And it's different, it's distinct in some ways from our soul because it's somewhere it's somewhere between it's yeah. the bridge in some way. It's the bridge between our our soul, our neshama, and also the self, the small self, the ego. And somehow the, the only way that I could, I wonder if this resonates with you, the way that I could understand it is to make it our capital P potential, right? So, so like resistance is capital R resistance, that's force 
Our capital P potential is always pulling us to what is possible for us in any given moment. Like in any given moment, what is our potential as an ego and as the self? What could we possibly do? And the daemon's like, this is what you could do. And you should, you should go to it. And it's always like pulling us towards that. Is that in some way what, how you understand the daemon? How, how, how would you explain it beyond That's that? That's great. I, I confess it's a mystery to me. I really wish I could speak to some wise Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi what, what this was, is all about. I mean, I, I have a darker view of the daemon than you do. Um, mm. I sort of think it's, it's like if we had an acorn, in that acorn is the potential to be a giant oak. And I think, and I think the daemon is that force. And that's why I say it's a monster, it's a monstrous force. That force to do that. And, and it, and there's no ethical element to the daemon, I don't think. You know, one of one of my books is called The Virtues of War about Alexander the Great. I don't know if you if you've gotten to that at all, but the, one of the reasons I really wanted to write about him was I felt he was a guy who really had a daemon and who really was kind of in touch with that with that daemon, you know, to conquer the world, right? And and he did. And along the way, and and I have him sort of talk about this in the book where he talks about there's Alexander and then there's Alexander, and that I'm getting a chill as even as I'm saying this right now, that he sort of felt when he was in battles or when he was, you know, moving aggressively toward whatever it was after, that he was being driven by this other force and that this other force would take him over. And if he were to speak to the troops and to rally them, that the, his daemon would come forward and afterwards he would wonder, well, where did that come from, you know? Um, and in the end, I think his daemon kind of drove him crazy. And because it's, again, and I don't really understand this, it's us, it's more us than anything, but it's not us. It's some. It's something else. Um, yeah. I know this is, I'm not adding any, any uh, illumination here, but uh, it's certainly a really, really powerful force. Let me just, I'll tell you one short story that I've told before that uh, may for our viewers here that may illuminate this a little bit. I have a friend named Yanis Melisinidis, who's a Greek, and he won the gold medal in uh, the floor exercise gymnastics at the 96 Atlanta Games. And when he was eight years old, he saw gymnastics for the first time on TV. And he went to his mother and dad immediately said, that's what I wanna do, please let me, you know, sign me up. And his family are all doctors. Mom is a doctor, dad is a doctor, blah, blah. They said, no fucking way, you're not going to the stupid thing, you're gonna be a doctor. So we went on a hunger strike. And he did like four days without food. And finally his parents, you know, caved. But they said to him, okay, we'll, we'll enroll you in gymnastics, but you also have to be a doctor. And he said, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. And he did become a doctor and he won the gold medal. But that was the daemon. When the daemon saw the gymnastics, it said, this is you, you know, this is what you have to do. And, and uh, I think a lot of us have those moments, you know. You certainly hear stories about actors. You know, I went to a Broadway show, I was four years old, Keanu Reeves, all of a sudden, ah, this is what I want to do, you know. Um, that's, that's the daemon that knows us 
better than we know ourselves, you know, and is, can drive us through everything. But it's what? not ethical. You know, I don't think it is. I think it will, like Picasso was a terrible person to the women in his life. Anyway, that's all, that's all I know, Aubrey. I don't know anymore. You know, and I, as I was thinking about this, I had something that kind of struck me that felt like uh, one of those moments like, oh, and it was understanding that if the daemon is our potential, it's, it's the blueprint within us in an acorn that says this is an oak tree, but not just in any oak tree. It depends on where that, where that acorn is in the soil, what the environment is, it's, and it's going, to, it's going to grow to the utmost capability that it has. An oak tree has no internal resistance. It doesn't have a mind. So it is just going to live according to its yeah, daemon yeah. perfectly, right? But we have all different kinds of options, but... To me, the daemon is is our potential, our capital P potential, what we could possibly become, but it's assessing an infinite a num- number of different uh, qualities, an infinite number of different calculations pertaining to what's happening in the world. So for your, for your friend, your Greek friend, somehow his daemon knew, oh, I have the genetics and I have the muscle structure, the bone structure, everything that I could be a gymnast. And I saw that gym and that's the thing that's really important. And so that is the way. And it, and it just kind of calculated that, but it, it shifts. And I think the daemon, because I think it's constantly calculating, you know, like if, if he didn't see gymnastics at that point and he was 15, by the time he saw it, gymnastics, wouldn't have been an option. He had to train at that young age because mm. you can't start gymnastics yeah, at 15. True. It's just true. not yeah. possible. And the way I understood it was, you know, most of us have seen Rain Man. We saw a depiction of what's called savant syndrome, where, you know, you're in certain individuals or in a place where their subconscious processing and calculation of events is beyond what the rational mind could even calculate. But it happens. You know, he, it happens that you're able to count things and remember things that a normal human couldn't remember. That's called savant syndrome. It's a real thing. The daemon is like in this permanent savant level calculation of every intrinsic quality you have and every opportunity that's available in the world. And it's like, this is your A1 100 potential. And I want this more than anything, you know? So for it's Alexander, it's like, here's the world, here's your skills as a leader. You're gonna conquer everything and keep going as far as you can. And like you said, it doesn't give a shit. It's just like, here's your potential and I'm gonna drive you like the most ruthless, monstrous master towards this. And you can resist it if you want, but this is my purpose. My purpose is to bring you to that 100% possibility with the infinite amount and complexity of calculations and draw you towards that. Well, that sounds like a pretty good analysis for me. Now, the other (laughs) thing to remember, like, is that the Romans, the Latin word for the same concept was genius. Mm. So the same sort of thing. But the one thing I do think I could add to that is the daemon assessing our potential. At any moment, our potential is exponentially greater than we think it is. You know, it does go into that savant sort of thing. We, I think, have throttled our self-concept down to such a small thing, you know. Yeah. But when when someone plugs into that daemon, you know, all bets are off and you can really accomplish amazing shit. Amazing, and it doesn't, and it, it really doesn't even feel like you. In those moments, I think we've all had them. And I remember there was a, <clears throat> I got in a pretty, pretty nasty car wreck um, in 2017. 
and I went to give a speech three weeks after the car wreck. The speech happened to be at Burning Man. And <clears throat> I gave this speech and I think from everything that I went through and for everything, I've given a lot of speeches, but I was completely out of body for this <laughs> whole speech. Uh-huh. And it was the absolute greatest thing to this day the greatest thing that i've ever offered and and i just i finished it and i walked off and i you know people were coming up to me and they're freaking out like oh my god that was inc-. i was like thank you thank you thank you yes thank you hugs and and you know the people i was with they were excited i was like i, I gotta take a moment and i just sat down and by myself and i just started weeping as i was like I don't know what that was. Uh-huh. I don't know what just happened, but it was so far beyond what I've ever been able to do as a speaker. How did what you I've ever feel, been able to achieve? How did you feel in the moment as you were doing the speech? Were you aware oh, of were, that or were you absent? There was like such a, a a live electric force where I felt like I there was maybe a hundred people. It wasn't a big crowd, but I felt like I was connected to them and i could feel them Mm. and i could feel and i knew every word Mm. every pause Mm. every moment that i should speak every moment that i should wait every way that every time i needed to you know put out a joke to Uh have them laugh or something to drive them into their emotions Uh i was just in this master conductor role and it was it was one of the best feelings I've ever had. I've, I've felt that in sports too. You can kind of get in the zone. But this was this was different because in sports there's so much action and it's such a kind of a limited game and it, was, it wasn't about the heart. This was like I was just, I had strings of energy that was connected to everybody's heart and mind. Ah, and wow. I could just feel I've it. I've never had that play. experience. That's great. Uh, well, shit, I mean, I mean it, it's, it's, it's monstrous in a way because once you have that, then you crave it you're like wow Uh, i want that and i've touched it for moments but that was like that moment where oh yeah that was 100 percent my daemon in full action uh, there was no way that speech was at 100 out of 100 and i didn't even know that 100 was possible uh it was 100 on another on another plane of reality uh 100 and and i think like those moments are are available to us how do how do we get there well, we just we show up and yeah. we open ourselves to it, just the same way as we invite the muse. And you do such a great job of talking about that. Put your ass where your heart wants to be. I don't know when the daemon's going to show up when I speak, but I'll stand up there. I'll grab the microphone. I'll open myself. I'll say a prayer, and maybe it maybe uh-huh. it will come through. And that may maybe it won't. I can't control that. It would be great if I could, uh-huh. but yeah. <laughs> I haven't learned the haven't learned the art of it. But it's some it's some combination. I think. You know, G. Hexmei who talks about flow state and the and the stakes being high and the the challenge. There's a lot of factors that can kind of bring that in. And even some of your stories about Alexander, which I love hearing stories about Alexander. You know, those moments that he's spoken to his men and the the there's probably that action on him where he's like, I just know exactly what I need to do yeah, here. Yeah. There's there's yeah. another just a, apropos of not, of Alexander here. This is just a fictional moment where early in his life, and this was the actual moment was true, but the interpretation is mine, where someone, one of his his fellow officers, uh, cast doubt on him, and Alexander in his mind became utterly enraged 
And the, the crime was, in his mind, this man has insulted my daemon. He, you know, he has doubted that I can do. And of course, what the guy was doubting was completely rational. Like, you're not going to conquer the world. You're 20 years old, you know. But he said, how dare you? And, and for that, in, in Alexander's mind, that was unforgivable. You know, that guy was cast into the outer darkness in Alexander's mind from that moment. Yeah. It's fictional. Yeah, I don't really, know, but it seems to ring a bell. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's take a let's take a moment to talk about, you know, as we as we're winding this down, let's take a moment to talk about building some of the virtues and some of the lessons that, you know, perhaps you've learned in some of the historical examples because one of the things that I endeavored to do when I wrote Go for Your Win is is talk about some of these skills that we need to develop. And so many of the the historical examples and and maybe stories from your own life um, of these different qualities. So I'll just talk about some of the qualities. And you know, one of these qualities is is toughness. Is just being tough, being able to stand up in the storm and be able to take some shit. You know, and to start to cultivate that sense of like toughness and that sense of being able to withstand. So, what are some stories that come to mind? For you when you talk about the way that the warrior cultures did it the way that you do it to just cultivate that toughness to stand in there when resistance is trying to kick your ass i mean i'm basically a weenie you know and so i've really <laughs> had to had to really uh work hard to cobble together whatever mental toughness I, I remember when i first heard heard that term mental toughness i had never even thought about it before you know and i go oh really that's what you know when you don't cave in in that moment you know um, but I, I do think that the, the I, I don't have any specific stories here, but I do think that one of the great, um, I don't know if I call it virtues, but practices that we all need to have is self-reinforcement. You know, when we have a moment where we do exhibit mental toughness, um, well, I can think of one moment, it's kind of a dumb moment, but um, for whatever this is worth, when I was first in Hollywood working as a screenwriter, I worked with a partner for a bunch of years. So I was sort of the junior slave member of the partnership. And mm -hmm. my partner was the, was the guy that got us all the work and blah, blah, blah. And we had a divorce. And there was a moment when I remember I was on the phone with him. I was in my kitchen. And he said to me, if that's the way you feel, I can no longer work with you and <laughs> slam down the phone. And I remember my heart stopped. And I said, that's, the, you know, and... But I sort of said, I kind of rallied somehow in that moment. And I said, okay, I'm fucked. You know, I'm not going to get a job without, you know, my partner. And I just said to myself, I can still write on my own. I've got enough money to last a year. I can write two screenplays in a year. And if I can't make it in that year, then I go back and I work at a gas station in Pleasantville, New York. You know, but, and, and so... When we have a moment of mental toughness like that, when we finally do get it together, I think it's really important to sit down with ourselves, even if we have to look in a mirror and, and reinforce ourselves, just like mm. a coach would or a mentor would and say, God damn it, you know, you may be a pussy 95% of the time, but that time you did it right, you know, and give yourself credit for that, absorb that, let it sink in. But I think it is, over time, a real process of self-coaching and, and self-reinforcement um, on almost all of these virtues, but certainly on mental toughness, at least for me. I'm just, I'm not naturally mentally tough, but I've made myself into it because it's so bad doing the, going the other way. 
I think when you when you start to lean into things that are hard, it starts to train. You know, you can use the physical toughness to train the mental toughness. Yeah, definitely. You're going to want to. You're going to want to quit. And I think I think I told this story actually when we were on the Joe Rogan. Well, it's your story, um, <laughs> but it's the uh, it's the story of I think it's it's the Agoge who are who are asked to run a marathon with ho- holding water yeah, in their mouth. Yeah, yeah. And this, if you wouldn't, if you would tell that story for us about how they started to train not only physical toughness but that mental willpower toughness through that through that exercise. Well, that was just. I'm not even sure how long the race was. I wish you know. It's funny these stories go into you read them and then I forget where I read them. You know, and I can't go back to find mm-hmm. them. But the gist of the race was you had to take a mouthful of water, and I think it was a cross country race, barefoot. And when the race was done, you crossed the finish line, you had to spit that water out. If you didn't have that water, you were disqualified. You know, they didn't beat you to death or anything. But that was, you know, to encourage mental toughness, you know, to, um, you know, to, to find, that, find that warrior spirit. Um, and the whole Spartan training, the whole Agoge was about that as, as much as we know about it. a lot of it was, from what I gather, where the older Spartans, the guys who were, you know, 40 years old, 50 years old, true warriors, could interrogate any of the young kids and at any time. And they would just kind of, and their answers were really important. You know, and they'd ask them things like, define honor. Who is the best man in the city and why? You know, what would you do if you found yourself bump it a bump it a bump, that kind of thing. And so and and their answers had to be short and they had to be funny if they could be funny and pithy you know laconic like uh you know surrender your your arms come and get come and take them you know and but that i'm sure from the spartan point of view from the collective point of view was a, a, a an exercise in inculcating mental toughness you know and mental mental quickness you know to keep on your feet in your mind you know when the pressure is on, to come up with something, you know, that was short and pithy and hit the target. And so the boys were trained from birth, you know, we're not birth, but seven years old, to cultivate that. And I think we have to do that too. You and I have to do that too, to ourselves. We're in our own little agoge of just our agoge of one. And you see these, you see these rites. I think this is the point of any rite of passage. You know, a rite of passage is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be something that's difficult. And whether that's, you know, going out and facing the cold. Like recently I went out this year, I went out with, you know, 10, 12 of my, you know, friends and brothers. We didn't know each other too well, but we went with Wim Hof, who has 26 world records for withstanding the cold. And oh. he, we climbed a frozen mountain with no shirt on and Mount Schnischka in Poland. And really? It was sleeting wow. and snowing. And it was, it was brutally difficult. But that was that rite of passage that, so when things are tough in our own life, it's like, oh yeah, but remember what it was like on hour four in Mount Schnischka yeah, when we yeah. couldn't feel our body and all we wanted to do was huddle up in, in warmth and go back down the mountain, but we kept climbing. Like you start to have that. And for the Spartans, yeah, remember what it was like when we were in mile, you know, or kilometer eight of that race and we still had that water and all we wanted to do was drink it, yeah. but we couldn't drink it because we had to spit it out. These things are really important. It's important for us to prove to ourselves what we're capable of so that when life comes at you with these difficult things, we have some resources. We have some some training, you know. And yeah. that's and you never know when you've had enough, you know. 
You never know exactly. what that new challenge is You gotta is keep be. going back to it. Yeah. In the Native American culture, it's the sweat lodge. You know, it's and for them, they often kneel in the sweat lodge. So they're kneeling for three, four hours in the heat, in the prayers, in the darkness, and not drinking. And it's yeah. that's their way of saying yeah, I like, fall apart when I can't get a caramel macchiato, you know? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but at the same time, you're trained when you sit down on that blank page and you're just like, I'm sitting here and I'm gonna write no matter what. That is that is your way of doing it. Like we all have to find our way, find our way to cultivate that strength so that when things get chaotic and things get challenging, we're like, ah, I know what I'm made of. Deep down, I know. I know that there's something in myself that will fight. And the other aspect of that too is knowing when to give yourself a little bit of a break too. You know, totally. That we're not too much Superman. training, too much training, and you'll overtrain yeah. and then you'll injure yourself. Yeah burn yourself out yeah so it's definitely that balance of I like was just did, did you watch the last dance you must have watched that michael jordan series. i did i did and you know there was one there were so many great moments in that but there was one where it was some kind of playoff and phil jackson let the guys go play golf and yep. they're out there on the cart and michael jordan is talking to cameron he says you know a younger coach would have had us back there in some horrible practice and we would have been burned out. We would have been killing each other. You know, it, it's so great that Phil knew, let us go out here on the golf course and just, you know, fuck around for a day and relax, take our minds off of it. Phil was like a real Obi-Wan. Yeah, he really, he really was he and really, is, I'm I mean, sure. That yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, that I mean, he's was really amazing. amazing. He had Luke Skywalker and, and the, and the yeah. Jedi forces there, but he was, uh, he was definitely the Obi-Wan. Yeah role in that yeah. and it was just beautiful to watch how yeah. he, he managed all of those different individuals for and sure and that's an archetype situation too that's where you've got the players and that's the warrior archetype and then you've got the coach who's obi-wan kenobi and you have to have them both you know yeah and phil was once a player he knew the warrior yeah right archetype. he knew he, he, he was a exactly. scrappy new york knickerbocker exactly and throwing elbows and yeah. grinding for rebounds yeah and, but then he transitioned into that sage yeah. archetype and, and really uh, executed that well. I want to talk about leadership as well, because I think that's something that, you know, you have some great examples. You give a great example in your in your video series um, about an Alexander the Great story. He was he had some great stories. Um, so talk to us about some of the some of the stories of leadership. And of course, uh, um, just there's many different, many different examples of uh of great leadership but what are some of that come to your mind from the the great archetypes of leaders that you've read well i should preface this by saying that i certainly do not consider myself a leader you know <laughs> i'm 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 just a solitary guy in a room doing his thing you know uh I'm, i don't have like a team or anything like that but there's a couple many great stories of alexander and i'll just do one of them here for this is one of the ones i love um the army was crossing a desert and strung out in column and uh, every the horses and men were just suffering terribly from thirst and suddenly some scouts came galloping back into alexander and they had found a spring somewhere enough to fill a helmet with water so they rode up to alexander and they gave him this helmet of water and everybody in the army stopped and they were just watching this thing and alexander thanked the scouts for bringing him the water and then without touching a drop, he poured it out into the sand. And at that point, a cheer erupted, you know, from one end of the column to the other, you know. So that's leadership to me. 
where yeah. in, in a statement without words, he said, you know, I am not going to ask anything of you, my brothers, that I'm not willing to do myself. And here it is. I've got the chance. I'm not going to do it. And you can imagine yourself, if you were one of those guys in that column, you'd follow him to the ends of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. There's another story. I think it comes from you. And it's a story that I tell when his men were on the verge of mutiny. And they were all on the verge of mutiny, deep in India, I think. And it's just sweaty. And they're fighting elephants. And it's hellish. <laughs> and they're like, we want to go home. And like, we got plenty of gold. We're good. Like, let's go. And, and Alexander, in the story, he slowly takes off his armor and takes off all of his armor and all of his tunic and everything else and just shows his body littered with scars because he always rode out in the front of his army with his double-plumed helmet on Bucephalus, you know, and he was just taking arrows and spears. And, and so everybody could see. And he says, you know, as he's just burying his chest, bring forth a man who has bled more than me and we will go home and everybody looks around and looks at his body and they're like all right you're right you know like and they just started cheering and it was the same idea it was like he wasn't asking anything of anybody that he wasn't going to do himself yeah and and i think that's uh yeah. just such a powerful lesson of leadership is just really to lead by example lead by being being the thing that you're yeah. asking people um asking people to, to be and there was there was an element of shame to that too he was shaming them you know yeah look at yeah. look at what i've done you know and they all had to say you know you're right you have done more than we have <laughs> yeah that the spartans used that that yeah. kind of shame and that reinforcement i love that story you tell as well where it's probably a fictional story but somehow a mother was at a place where she saw two of her sons uh, running from a battle and she lifted up her skirt and said where do you think you're going back from whence you came <laughs> you know and they're like oh mom <laughs> shit well you, you know, know that actually comes from plutarch so if it was fictional it was fictional with him yeah yeah so I mean, there's all these there's all these virtues that you know i think as we build our own ethos as we build our own understanding of who we want to be this is where you know not only your nonfiction books but your fictional books which are based on a lot of historical fact as well they start to give models they start to give models by how we can decide who we want to be and what we want to ascribe to and what our identity holds as in the highest value and i think that's really important it's important for us to know like who am I? Who do, who do I want to be? Who does my small self want to be? What is my Damon asking me to be? What is my capital S self? And what is the ethos that I really care about? You know, do I care about, like for the Spartans, they didn't care about winning or losing. They just cared that they fought. That, that was the thing. Like it wasn't like, did it, of course they wanted to win, but more important than winning was fighting to the last man. It was not running away. So in that case, there was so much less fear. It wasn't about, oh, well, if I die, that's fine. If I, if, you know, whatever happens is fine, but as long as I don't run away. And they built their, they built their ego construct in that way that that's the force that they became. And I think for us, it's the invitation to look at all of this work and look at all of the body of knowledge that you've provided and all of history has provided and what our own, you know, muse can inspire in us and say, who do I want to be? What is the thing that I care about? 
you know like what is the thing that i care about most yeah i mean in a way the spartans in that analogy they had it easier than we have it because they were embedded in a culture that reinforced that ethic from the minute they were born and in fact it didn't give them any choice whereas you and i are isolated individuals floating in this meaningless cosmos and we've got to you know create you know our own sort of you know nation of one or at least before mm -hmm. we move into the collective we have to like you say you got to decide who do you who am i who do i want to be one of the reasons that i am drawn to the past and to write you know these from that era that you can relate to too you know is that that was a more heroic era than this today you know um, it's tough to look around and find any models today, you know, maybe in the sports world, maybe in the extreme, you know, world, but, uh, but in the ancient days, it was much more, you know, it was a more of a heroic concept that people saw of, of life itself. We have it pretty easy here. We live in a, you know, we forget that America is a commercial culture, you know, this is a consumer society. This is not Sparta. It isn't Rome. It isn't Athens. It's, you know, buy, you know, Raisin Bran and buy whatever, you know, and do a video that goes viral. That's the culture we're in. And it's really yeah. tough to, to be bombarded with that constantly and find our, our bearings into something that maybe is a little more noble and a little more heroic. Because we're all I called to that. That's our, inner, that's our nature. We are. And I think, you know, one of the things, even for our own, you know warrior heroes now one of the challenges is is that war is not like it used to be true it's like who's the enemy and who's not the enemy true and why it's are like, we here why are we here in the first yeah, place it's like right? war like, is out of it date, wasn't yeah. like it wasn't like the pitched battle yeah. where you know you had two forces that were across from each other and you do a great model of this of how they used to fight in the in the lowlands in between the mountains it was like all right we're going to line up here we're going to look each other in the eye and we're going to start walking forward you know, and like, this is the way that this is going to go. And, and that's something that we, I think we all crave. We want to know, okay, who's the enemy? I don't know. Who is the enemy? What's going on? It, it, it's very difficult to understand that. So you have to have almost the enemy being non-physical things. Okay, the enemy is greed. The enemy is selfishness. The enemy is, you know, judgment, discompassion, the enemy. And so we have these kind of different ephemeral enemies which are different than just seeing when the persians are coming like all right yeah. the persians are coming to take over greece that's yeah. a clear enemy and a clear reason to fight which gives you know leonidas and his 300 the ultimate heroic landscape to operate in clear enemy clear goal and a clear you know sacrifice that they're willing to make for the greater good and i think that's something that we're missing but we have to create it and i think we can create it but we just have to create it as ideals. You know, we have to say, all right, what we're fighting against is divisiveness. We're fighting against, you know, seeing everybody else as other instead of self. We're fighting against all of these other ideas of oppression and taking advantage and, and all of these things. And it's not always clear how to make that stand, but I think that's the stand we have to make. That's the pitched battle we have to have, like Cyrano's death scene where he starts calling out his true enemies, which is, you know, avarice and and ignorance and all of these and he's going in this fictional sword duel 
you know, as his brain is hemorrhaging oh, out of his head. I didn't even know that. Doctor. I got to look that up. Oh, that's great. Oh, the Cyrano's death scene oh. is phenomenal. And he's just calling out his true enemies, which are just oh, the energy, the energies, great. the energies of, of, of huh. evil and darkness and oppression, because there is no enemy for him to fight at that ah. point. He got, he got a rock dropped on his head or a ah. log dropped on his head. And, and of course, the real the, enemy, that's the position we're in. The real enemy is, is resistance. Is exactly. whatever it is that's stopping us from being what we could be, you know, that's the, that's the individual enemy. The, you're you're talking about the collective enemy, which is definitely true too. How can we be a world? How can we live together? You know, yeah, those are the yeah, enemies. And, yeah, and make that make that our kind of our pitched battle. One of the stories that always I think kept me studying classics forever, and it's a story about um, Roman soldiers. And it was a story that I told, and I remember my professor, Walt Stevenson, and he got so excited when he told this story, and he was talking about the different classes of the Roman army. And there was the, there was the younger kids who just had their spears, their pilums, and they would, you know, they would kind of run through the ranks, and they would throw their spears at the other army, and then they would run back because they weren't seasoned enough to fight. And then there was like the slightly older crew that had their spears and had their, you know, had their gladius and had their sword. And then they, they would advance and march on the army and actually go into hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then there was the real seasoned veterans, like the Navy SEAL version of the seasoned veterans. And they would just watch the whole thing and they would take a knee. And they would have a knee and they would have their helmet down and they would just be watching, taking a knee. And it, the way he told it is it was so disheartening for the enemy who just had to take this barrage of arrows and spears from the young kids and then get marched on by the 20 year olds and 30 year old and then they had just the absolute the absolute best of the best that was just kneeling watching so if they made it through all the spears and arrows and they made it through the first wave they knew that they had the hardest thing coming for them and so they were like oh my god i don't even want to do this and I think we all we all tra traverse through those different warrior archetypes where at first we're just dancing in there and we're giving little jabs and throwing our spirit resistance. And then we become a fighter and we're actually fighting with it and we're taking blows. And and then eventually we become that the one in the back that's just kneeling like, all right, resistance, I know you're going to uh, be there, but I'm ready. I've been through some uh, battles. That's great. That's great. I've <laughs> been through some battles. Yeah. Well, you've given you've given me and the world just uh, an invaluable amount of guidance and a, an invaluable amount of stories and things that we can point to. And I'm just incredibly grateful and on myself and on behalf of the world for everything that you've offered. And and so thankful that you sat down with me to have this conversation as well. Well, thanks for having me, Aubrey. I mean, it's uh, I'm I'm very um, I'm humbled. You know, I have no clue. You know, or uh, in any event, I'm uh, thank you very much for having me and for being uh, us for being able to share some of this with uh, our brothers and sisters that hopefully can take something from it. And thanks for no turning doubt. me on to the death scene of Cyrano. I've got to look that up immediately. Oh, absolutely. I had no clue. Uh, yeah. The translation from... Where, yeah, um, where should I go for that? A movie? The translation a from Lowell Bear is, the, is my favorite translation. So Lowell Bear is B-A-I-R is my favorite translation of that. Okay. And... Um, ah, Okay. Yeah, I will and, get uh, it immediately, straight to Amazon. It's, it's yeah, it's really it's really good. You'll you'll enjoy that. He's one of the hero archetypes that I really love. Tragic, of course, but but uh, but beautiful. So, well, 
anything um you have this the the warrior the warrior archetype series uh what is what is it actually it's called the warrior it's called the warrior archetype it's just a and you know the war, warrior archetype and, is the me series, and diana yeah. on tv yeah uh yeah and uh beautiful and then you have what's the uh what's your next book coming out that we can uh, uh that we can i look do have a, to? where do i have it uh this is not coming for a few months but mm -hmm. I, if you want, it's called A Man at Arms. It's another thing back to the ancient days. And if you would Beautiful. like, Aubrey, I would love to send you a copy. And Please. maybe we might Please. talk about it. Absolutely. Anytime, anytime you want to have a conversation, I'm your guy. I love these conversations and we could do this. There's so many things. I didn't even get to talk about anything from Tides of War or your last of the Amazon. I mean, there's so many different stories that I think add so much value and add so much and, and allow us to dive into things. So anytime you want to talk. Oh, great. I'd love to do it again. You know, we'll let it. a few months pass. We'll do it again. <laughs> Let's but do it. I'm glad that we have connected. This is great. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the work you're doing. I think you are really doing something, you know, in the collective that's going to make a difference, you know, along with everybody else that's doing similar things out there, you know. God yep. bless you. I take my hat off to you. Likewise, God bless you as well. And thank you everybody for tuning in. So much love. All right, that's a wrap. Hey, great. Okay, no, that was terrific. We got to do this beautiful. again sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. I thank really look thank you for to being it. so knowledgeable about my stuff and being able to answer or to ask such interesting questions. You know, uh, yeah. it's rare and uh, makes it, you know, much more fun for me. And Absolutely. I mean, this, I'm so, I'm so into these things. I got to see, or no, I got to find out about this. Of course. That, and, you know, honestly, if you read, it's, uh, so Patrick Rothfuss wrote two books. It's the best fantasy books I've ever read. It starts with, um, it starts with, uh, what is the first one? It's um, Name of the Wind and then goes to A Wise Man's Fear. Um, but The Wise Man's Fear is, it's just a stunning depiction of that that culture the adem culture it's in the lithani i think you would really dig that uh oh great i'm gonna that order well. right now yeah and then that and cyrano so those would be the two things that that's I would, my assignment uh, I pass on your list yeah all right thank, thank you so much thank you very much thanks for tuning into this podcast with Stephen pressfield i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did for anybody interested in the fit for service program we're reopening for applications so check that out aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service and we will see you next week